Section 26 of Bethlehem by Frederick William Faber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Calvary Before Its Time, Part 3. Twelve years are gone, and the boy kneels as a worshipper in the temple. His single kneeling figure is all we picture to ourselves. But alas, where are the words to say what it is we see? Is it all the realm of angels with the manifold beauty of their choirs, expressive in ten thousand diversities of the almost infinite spirit of adoration? Is it the beauty of all heaven caught up by God and cast into one point of exceeding light and then doubled in the eyes of Jesus? No, that is not all. Is it then the beauty of all holy hearts throughout the earth and the earth's ages, worshipping their heavenly Father in their gladness, in their sorrow, in their pensiveness, in the fortitude of their humility, under all the never-repeated variety of their pathetic circumstances? Are all hearts worshipping in that heart, and all the world's worship working in that radiant countenance? No, there is also more than that. There is the indescribable fullness, the unimaginable repose, of the worship of the sacred humanity, encompassing the majesty of God, enveloping each and all of his lightning-like attributes, and bearing on itself, as the great tidal wave bears the sun-struck foam upon its crest, all the worship of angels and of men up to the foot of the eternal throne, ever rising, ever falling, ever giving light, like the spray in the dark night-time upon the eternal shore. Let us look again. It is two hours past noon, and there is a gathering of the pilgrims at the gate of Jerusalem, through which the road goes northward. Joseph and the band of men are together, and Mary and the band of women. The two companies will travel separate till nightfall. There is something of the picturesqueness of an encampment about the meeting-place, and the faces are all fresh, and seem to witness to the soul being in a state of grace after the spiritual renewal of the feast. Between the two bands the boy Jesus passes like a wandering sunbeam, with less of notice than we have ever seen him receive in any other picture. He withdraws and is not missed. There is a spell on Mary's heart, the viewless band over Joseph's eyes. He stands in the shadow of the gate and sees the company of women start, to be followed in another hour, and by a different route, by the troop of men. The boy clings to the city, as if it were his mother, as if those rugged ravines were the very skirts of her garment. O Jerusalem, and thou wert such a mother. The vision of the holy city, as he saw it that February morning, twelve years ago, is graven on his soul. He saw it by the Nile bank, he came home from exile with it in his heart. He drew near to it, and Joseph was warned in a dream to take him from it. He will wean himself now from Mary and from Nazareth, or at least will seem as if he were bent on doing so for his doings are unfathomable just now. No one yet has sounded them or unriddled their significance. Hereafter the tempter from a mountain top shall show him all the kingdoms of the earth, their pageants and their treasures, and his eye shall wander coldly over them from the summit of Quarantana. His covetousness is of an exclusive sort. Sufferings and souls are the only treasures that he craves. But the vision of Jerusalem its stones, to his prophetic eye, already stained with blood, its streets ringing with the furious acclaim which met Pilate's appeal to the popular compassion, 
the crisp rustling of the old olive trees in the neighbouring Gethsemane, the bones whitening in the sun on the pale turf of Calvary, this was a more tempting sight than that from Quarantana. It drew him from Mary's side, for a tridor, at least like the tridor of his passion, he will beg his bread, a heavenly mendicant, in the streets of Zion, and lay his delicate limbs on the rude pavement. He will have the very stones, which he will one day mark with his precious blood, leave their marks now on his yielding flesh. Yet as he stands in the shadow of the gateway, his eye follows his mother's figure till it disappears, and there are many things which seem contrary, yet not conflicting, eloquently speaking out of those eyes, whose language is more easily to be read because their brilliance is softened in the gateway's shade. Once more we see him in the temple. He is in the hall of the doctors, the school of theology. The gravest men in Israel are gathered round him. Almost every form of wonder is depicted on their faces, while their limbs are perfect studies because of the various ways in which their attitudes express the intensity of their attention. Angry wonder blends with sweet surprise, and zeal that needs but the spark to fire its train mingles with the only half-intelligent delight which illuminates the features of some of the aged men. But on many faces there is the beginning of a look which can darken some day into the darkness of an awful cruelty. The door of the hall is half open, and Mary and Joseph stand there, not amazed, not petrified into statues, but in unspeakable repose, as if they had had to journey to the world's end, and had got there now, and there was nothing more to do, and no further to be gone, for they had come to him who was the end of all worlds. As to himself, never was the bashfulness of his boyhood more obviously, more winningly displayed than now when the Creator was sounding the intelligences of his creatures, and sprinkling them with a shower of his own celestial wisdom. He was asking questions, who was in himself the sole sufficient answer to all questions that could be asked. He was seeming to learn in order that he might more sweetly teach. He was blamelessly deceiving that the seers of Israel might behold the truth. More and more he grew like a boy, as more and more the light of the Godhead within him was burning away the thin veils of flesh and blood. Surely in another moment he will bloom into confessed, undoubted God, and the life will be scared out of their stricken souls. The angels remember him as he was at that astonishing moment, to Mary's love and Joseph's faith manifest God, to the others a wonder, a portent, an enigma, a suspicion, yet to all of them a not unchildlike child. Words indeed have golden pencils, but there are unexplored regions of the sacred infancy which no limning of language can portray. The act of the Incarnation under the overshadowing of the Holy Ghost is practically as hidden from us as the generation of the sun up in the inaccessible sources of eternal light. The nine months' life in the bosom of his mother, evidenced outwardly by Mary's haste and by the sweetness of her song, by Elizabeth's salutation and the jubilee of the Baptist, redeemed before his birth, was a succession of spiritual pictures which we cannot imagine, but of which it is no mean knowledge to know that such things were. When we regard him also, wherever he was during those twelve years, as the centre of the world's government, environed by multitudes of angels, giving laws to all the phenomena of nature, shedding power and life and endurance into all things, 
holding them up above the hungry abyss of nothingness which is ever threatening to engulf all finite things, playing upon the manifold strings of his immense providence, and encircling every existence in the universe with the warm, clasping ring of his creative love. We see indistinctly into another vast region of which we can discern nothing but its vastness, while our instincts testify to the necessity of its being also extremely beautiful. His soul, too, had a spiritual scenery of its own, which nothing but his own light could by some supernatural process transfer to our intelligences. Much also, from time to time, reveals itself to the meditative eye, out of the operations of grace in the souls of Mary and Joseph from contact with him. This also belongs to the sacred infancy and throws light upon its marvellous creations. But these are unexplored regions, on the one hand not to be attempted, on the other hand not to be forgotten. But one thing is true of all these pictures. The shadow of Calvary rests upon them all. Everywhere the sunlight is intercepted. There is not one patch in one landscape on which the unimpeded sun may sleep, as on a bank of flowers. The shadow is universal. Denser here and thinner there, it is unequal, but it is ubiquitous. The passion is the unity of the infancy. Calvary gives its character to Bethlehem. It is strangely gifted for a shadow, for it makes both the light and shade of all the pictures. It withdraws from the eye what it would have us see but indistinctly. It thrusts darkly on our notice what it would not have us fail to see. It is the atmosphere of the infancy impressing its peculiarity on the scenery. It becomes familiar to us, intelligible to us, dear to us, by the colourless medium of that soft shading. But it was not merely an outward thing, a haziness hung upon the hills, a twilight sent to mellow, a memory that usurps an empire over the eye, or a foresight that tinges the imagination. Calvary was the real inward life of the sacred heart in the infancy. It was more the babe's home than Bethlehem. There was indeed an underground world of ecstatic joys beneath the sorrow, but it was jealously hidden, like a divine thing, which is meant to transpire rather than to be seen. Neither was the shadow on himself only, but on all around him. It transfused itself into the heart of Mary, for how could she see by a different light from that with which he saw? It penetrated into the heart of Joseph. The venerable Jane of the Cross tells us that Joseph was allowed to feel all the pains of the Passion in a mystical way, as some of the saints have done. But the shadow stole everywhere, just as the twilight creeps noiselessly into evening's sunniest nooks, and quietly masters all the land without the winnowing of its silken wing being heard or seen. Everywhere there was shadow, and it was one shadow, the shade cast by Calvary, a low hill indeed, but tall enough to cast a shadow that should gird the globe and come round to rest on the same dear height from which it had been thrown. The sacred infancy may almost be defined to be the passion in repose. There is indeed at first sight an apparent contrast between Bethlehem and Calvary, between the crib and the cross. Neither can we truly say that it is only apparent. No two mysteries of our Lord are exactly alike. They are full of analogies. A unity of spirit reigns over them all. Yet no one is the mere double of another, or the repetition of it under different picturesque circumstances. 
Nevertheless, the apparent contrast between the crib and the cross is much stronger than the real difference. The region of Bethlehem seems to be the abode of almost perpetual calm. There is the placid littleness of the infant. There is the gentleness of the meditative Joseph. There are the maternal joys of Mary too deep for utterance. There is beauty, sweetness, softness, something attractive to the genius and eye of art. This is all broken up by the storms of Calvary, and Joseph has disappeared. In the world of the infancy we have almost total seclusion from men. In the world of the Passion, Jesus is the central figure and suffering victim of a wild and infuriate multitude. In Bethlehem, and up to the city gate at twelve years of age, we behold Mary's unbroken jurisdiction over him. One of the sorrows of Calvary is her inability to help him or even to minister to the thirsting sufferer the ministries of a common charity to say nothing of the offices of maternal love. Seemingly, at least, there is in the crib an absence of bodily pain, while the cross and the antecedents of the cross are remarkable for an unutterable excess of it. In the times of the infancy, those who loved him were always with him, and when he had to fly, it was those he loved who fled with him. In the times of Calvary, those he loved abandoned him, until at last, after he had given away to Mary that sweet apostle who was her second Joseph, his solitude became without a parallel, for he himself had put his mother from him, and the Eternal Father had forsaken him. When the infancy and boyhood came to a close, miraculous manifestations of the divine complacency preluded to the opening of his ministry, as he came up out of the waters of Jordan, whereas the very last step in his passion was the agony of a divine dereliction, these things make a strong contrast between the crib and the cross, and they are surely more than mere appearances, more than simple varieties of scenery. Nevertheless, in spite of this indubitable contrast, there is a real inward identity between the two. In the soul of Jesus, prevision was not simply a great gift of prophecy. What we learned of his science in the last chapter will show us that there was a reality in his prevision of the passion which made it a substantial passion already. The bodily pains were anticipated with a vividness which, if it did not rack muscle, nerve and flesh as the reality was to do, at least transferred a proportionate agony of fear and trembling and natural horror to his shrinking soul. While the spiritual tortures of the passion were not so much foreseen at Bethlehem as actually begun, Inasmuch as they had not to be learned, and could not be aggravated by any new occurrences, there was not reason why they should not be felt from the first moment of his conception. Indeed, some contemplatives tell us that Jesus sweated blood repeatedly during his infancy. Moreover, Calvary presided over Bethlehem. The mysteries of the cross exercised an acknowledged sovereignty over the mysteries of the crib. These last were not ends. There were roads which had to be travelled, things which happened on the road, landscapes seen from it. They had no direct share in the accomplishment of the great work of redemption. Blood was to be shed, shed till it was all shed, shed until life oozed out with it, and the sacred union of body and soul was dissolved. This followed from the change which sin superinduced upon the first idea of the Incarnation. Had the word come in a purely glorious incarnation, an incarnation which was to crown creation, and had no redemption to effect, perhaps the act of his incarnation and his beginnings of a created life among his creatures 
might have seemed more wonderful to the eyes of men than the triumphal ascension with which his appointed years would have concluded, an ascension which would not then have been reached through any gates of death. Death would have been but a phenomenon of the animal kingdom, unknown to immortal men. But now the eyes and hearts of men will gather where their hopes are, around the dim scene of Calvary and the sacrificial horrors of the cross. Yet even now the operation of God is more manifest in the mysteries of Bethlehem and the operation of man in the mysteries of Calvary. In the one God works, in the other he suffers. In both he is active and in both he is passive, yet, if we may venture to say so, we see more of his activity in Bethlehem and more of his passiveness on Calvary. Bethlehem is what the Creator does to his creatures. Calvary is what his creatures do to him. The will of the child was the same as the will of the man. The will in Bethlehem was identical with the will on Calvary. There was the same intense desire of suffering with the same deep dread of it. There was the same weight of sin torturing his sensibility with its cruel load. There was the same anger of the father to be endured, perceived with the same clearness, apprehended with the same fullness of science, an ungrowing anger which would not increase with the years of Jesus, and which did not require the cooperation of human cruelty in order to make itself felt within his soul. His mother, in whose life he lived the dearest part of his own life, was already the mother of dollars, though as yet she had not stood on Calvary. Her nine months of expectation had not been unchecked gladness. The immensity of her science and the light which to her glowed perpetually on the page of Scripture alike forbade it. Her forty days of peace at Bethlehem had their shades of sorrow which, although they were shortly to be deepened, were still palpable shadows. But since the prophecy of St. Simeon, the seven swords had been planted in her bosom, and they could never be drawn out now for eight and forty years, almost half a century, for if they were drawn out she would bleed to death. In both the mother and the son the dispositions of sacrifice and oblation were absolutely the same. Inwardly, therefore, there was complete identity between the crib and the cross. It only needed act to transfigure Bethlehem into Calvary. There was even much outward analogy between the two. The Bethlehemites rejected him in the person of his mother, as the Jews afterwards rejected him in his own. He had scarcely made himself visible on earth when he had to fly from his own creatures, because his life was deemed incompatible with their interests, just as in his passion his death was pronounced by the spiritual authorities of the nation to be expedient for the people. No one can meditate on the mystery of the presentation without being often reminded of Palm Sunday. His infancy had there its one brief triumph before the face of the babe was snatched away and hidden in the solitudes of the wilderness and amid the crowds of Egyptian idolaters. Anna bore him witness, and Simeon sang him a song of triumph, as meek and childlike as his own infantine sweetness. It was in the same temple where the little children in later years cried Hosanna after him, giving tongues, as he implied, to the very inanimate stones that were almost breaking forth to praise him. If from the hilltop, on the road from Bethany, he saw the mourning on Jerusalem, and shared his memorable tears, May we not suppose also that his infant eyes were suffused with the tears of manifold emotions when he saw Jerusalem from his mother's arms that February morning? 
From the coasts of Egypt he drew near to Jerusalem, but under Joseph's authority he turned aside. It was not time. So afterwards did he hide himself when the others were going up to Jerusalem. He would not go up yet, because all was not ready. To the mystery of the circumcision his sacred infancy owed its privilege of shedding blood, which is almost its most striking analogy with the Passion. On Calvary he involved all near him in the darkness and anguish of his sufferings. Mary was steeped in woe, Magdalene and John were broken-hearted. The poor fugitive apostles were overwhelmed with darkness and with the bitterness of love, self-disappointed and self-ashamed. Peter was even driven to deny him. Persecution awaited all, it was the same in his infancy. At that time he involved in all his sufferings his blessed mother, his aged foster-father, and even a helpless multitude of slaughtered innocents. A dark, bright ring of suffering lay wide around him, wherever he moved, like a halo round the moon. It is so even now. It will be so to the end. The vicinity of Jesus is a privilege of delighted grace, for which nature has to pay dearly. In the Teridur of the Passion, he was separated from Mary three days. It was a like Teridur, marked by the same separation which brought the infancy to a close. The resurrection followed the former Teridur, and the eighteen years of hidden Nazareth, which follow the latter Teridur, are full of analogies with the forty days after the resurrection, in many ways besides their hiddenness. Thus even the outward analogies between Bethlehem and Calvary are neither few in number nor insignificant in their mystery. In the light of theology and in the fire of devotion, Bethlehem and Calvary are continually blending into one. There is no more strongly marked peculiarity of theology than the way in which it unites distant truths, harmonizes remote mysteries, and identifies things which in matters less divine would seem irreconcilable, if not contradictory. In the doctrine of our Lord's divine person we see how Bethlehem and Calvary were one to him to whom time can bring nothing, and to whom the three and thirty years were but as a golden point, which to us, when it is beaten out and far from beaten thin, can cover the whole world with its magnificence of manifold mystery. The immense science of his human soul, and his full use of reason from the moment of his conception, remove from his sacred infancy all those imperfections which seem at first sight incompatible with his prevision and anticipated experience of the passion. What we know of the exquisite sensibilities and delicate perfections of his humanity relieves us from all suspicion of exaggeration even when we look at Bethlehem in our own minds as an unbroken Gethsemane. The doctrine of his ungrowing grace secures for us the fixity of his interior dispositions by which mainly it is that Calvary is so imperceptibly and inseparably dovetailed into Bethlehem. The most probable opinions about Mary's science already invest her amply in the mantle of her dollars, and so her science involving her heart in the darkness of the great tragedy, his heart is involved with hers. The two hearts beat in each other and cannot beat otherwise. The two lives of the mother and the son cannot be disentangled without many an unseemly rent in the sacred vesture of theology. Moreover, the doctrine of his use of reason makes the infancy already a passion of itself, with a peculiar tragedy of its own distinct from that of Calvary, for it had pains and perils, sufferings and penances belonging to itself, 
and these, which to a common infant would have had all the imperfect consciousness, unanticipated occurrence, rapid transition and speedy oblivion common to childhood, were to him, with his full use of reason, perfect grown-up sufferings, with the additional uneasiness of physical infirmity and voluntary speechlessness and all the self-imposed disguise of infancy. But if the crib and the cross so blend in the light of theology they are completely fused together in the fires of devotion, they both produce the same spirit in the soul, though they produce it variously. The spirit of Bethlehem is one of contrition, of mortification and of expiatory reparation, and of the same sort is the spirit of Calvary. It is as natural for devotion to weep by the manger as it is to weep by the cross. Thus, in all the saints and holy persons who have had a special attraction to the sacred infancy, it has been a pensive, pathetic devotion. It breathes the same lowliness as Calvary. There is the same fragrance of self-objection. It drives the sense of sin as deeply into the softened heart as the scene which the moonlight of Gethsemane discloses. The child crucified and the crucified man on his mother's lap are the echoes of each other, soundless echoes seen rather than heard by the eye of piety. The love caused by both mysteries is the same. It is the love of exceeding pathos, not like the love of the resurrection or of the hidden years at Nazareth. Even the very differences of Bethlehem and Calvary reach the same end, though it be by opposite roads. They go round the world, one by the east, the other by the west. They exhibit him crucified, and they produce an inward crucifixion in the soul. They both land us in an abnegation of ourselves. They both regenerate us in a mystical childhood. Both are ways of tears, both are gateways through which only littleness can enter. Both envelop us with the spirit of Jesus, and unclothe us of all that is vile and ignoble in our own. They both express themselves in the same outward symbolical reality, speaking the same language at the same moment, in one awful and indivisible voice, in the Mass and the Blessed Sacrament. End of section 26